Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. I believe that the kingdom of God is open to anyone who chooses to follow our Lord, and we are all called to that kingdom. But I also understand that people will willingly, knowingly, intentionally reject that because they don't believe in it, just as I don't believe in other faiths or beliefs. But as a Christian, I need to continue to be faithful in the message of our Lord, of not only loving people who think that I'm their enemy, but of being absolutely intolerant of intolerance. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Abigail Thomas and you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. My guest today is Archbishop Angelos, the first Coptic Orthodox Archbishop of London. We met at the beautiful Coptic Orthodox Centre in Hertfordshire, which is home to the modern Coptic Orthodox Cathedral of St George. Archbishop Angelos was dressed in a typical Coptic cassock with his monastic cowl, which is a type of hood decorated with crosses, which he wore underneath his black Episcopal headdress, which is a large, rounded satin hat. He was also wearing a long chain with a detailed icon showing the Virgin Mary carrying the infant Jesus. Archbishop Angelos, welcome to the profile on Premier Christian Radio. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be with you. You are the first Coptic Orthodox Archbishop of London. And it's great to be in this beautiful centre. I've just had a quick look around your cathedral. It's so beautiful and I could hear the, the music. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the Coptic Church, Coptic Orthodox Church, and also about you and, and your story? Well, thank you, yes. Um, you know, the Coptic community has been here uh, now for just over 50 years. Um, and we're very blessed to have this place amongst 35 parishes across the UK, mm. where we serve our faithful and serve the wider community. Can we start by finding out a bit more about the church? Tell me, about the Coptic Orthodox Christian history. You've been in Egypt for almost 2,000 years now. Tell me about the origins of the church. How did it start out? So the word Coptic just means Egyptian. Um, it would be much easier speaking about other churches like the Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, but Coptic Orthodox just means Egyptian Orthodox. And Christianity in Egypt was established by St. Mark the Evangelist, the writer of the Gospel, who was there uh, in the middle of the first century, around 55 AD. Um, as he was journeying through uh, the streets of Alexandria, uh, his sandal strap broke, and he went into a local cobbler. And as he was fixing his sandal, he, he injured himself with the awl he was using, and he screamed out, saying, Oh, the one God. And uh, so St. Mark, being the evangelist and opportunist that evangelists are, mm -hmm started to speak to him about the one God. And of course, the context is important because 
ancient Egyptian religion gave itself to understanding Trinitarianism, a one God, afterlife, uh, all of these things. And so the message of Christ in Christianity wasn't so foreign to the Egyptian. And we know that from that point on, uh, Ananias, who was then the cobbler, uh, received the faith and the, the faith spread. Since then, we've had an unbroken Christian presence in Egypt for the past 2,000 years. Um, until the beginning of the second millennium, it was estimated that the Christian population of Egypt was about 85%. The vast majority accepted the faith. Uh, with the um, entrance of Islam in the 7th century uh, and then the subsequent centuries, uh, we saw a wave of persecution enter where the population dropped in the beginning of the first millennium from 85% to about 15%. And that remains around the number at the moment. The Coptic Orthodox Church is a traditional church. It is sacramental, so it would have the same sacraments as many of your listeners who would be you know, familiar with the Catholic Church or High Anglican Church would understand of the Eucharist, a baptism, confession, marriage, the, the major sacraments we all share. We're a very deeply scriptural church, so the Bible plays an incredibly important part in, in, in our doctrine and in our day-to-day -day life. We're also a traditional church using capital T tradition, which is the writings of the early fathers of the church. Names like Athanasius and Cyril, uh, names that, are, that were core to the Christian journey from very early on, were founding fathers in the first centuries of the Coptic Orthodox Church as we know it today. Um, and we're a very pastorally minded church. So besides... Besides the teaching, the doctrine, uh, all of that, we're a church that believes in serving uh, through our clergy, through our laity, having a very deeply embedded pastoral service in all of our communities, and uh, particularly paying a lot of attention to children's ministry and youth ministry in our contemporary history. Yeah, I had a quick look next to the cathedral. You're incredible and quite surprising, honestly, sports hall. <laughs> you seem like you serve the young people well here? Well, that was a significant part of our ministry. I have been here since 1995. When I first came, um, I came as, as a, a monk priest, and I had a, a small community, but I had a wider remit of serving young people across the UK. And we had this beautiful manor we're in, and there was a, a room that had been converted to a chapel. And for the first 10 years, we used to hire marquees and get rained on and get in the mud and you know the, the wonderful things we're all com very familiar with with marquees in, in this country and then we built this building the cornerstone building which comprises of uh, the, the cathedral the cathedral of st george but also a multi-purpose multi, -fun a multi hall right next to it which is used for sporting ministry cultural ministries music uh, arts ministry because with the ethos we have towards youth ministry, I strongly believe in using the gifts people have. And we have so many wonderfully gifted young people. And so if they find their way in what they like to do, then it becomes much more 
organic in the way they serve and are served through these incredible gifts. What are some of the things that set Coptic Orthodox Christians apart, do you think? What are some of the differences that you're proud of? You know, it's difficult to answer this question without sounding tribal and tribal. <laughs> yes, I understand. Which, We're going to talk about unity later, don't which, worry. <laughs> There's no judgment here. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but you know, it's, it, I think we all have such incredible gifts as the body of Christ. And I think three of the particular gifts we have as a church are both historic but also contemporary. The first is... Um, our um, uh, theology and doctrine. Um, so, as I said, we have such great fathers as Athanasius who drafted the Nicene Creed that we all use across you know, the Christian family now, but was also one of the popes, the 20th Pope of the Coptic Orthodox Church. He was respected, revered. Um, and then people like St. Cyril of Alexandria, who also weighed into the the idea of theology and, and the Christology that we have, the relationship between uh, Christ as the incarnate word, as God in flesh, and his presence among us here. So we've had that rich presence of, of, of doctrine that also became very evident in the ecumenical councils. Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus... You know, as the church gathered together and rallied. And that is still carried on now in our ecumenical engagement um, through uh, both uh, local, national, regional, international bodies uh, like Churches Together in England, Churches Together in Britain, Ireland, here in the UK, but also more broadly the World Council of Churches, Middle East Council of Churches, and various regional councils. So we take that very seriously, as well as having bilateral, multilateral commissions with, with the, the Anglican Communion, the, the Catholic Church, the Evangelicals, and many others. The second would be our monastic movement. The monasticism started in the deserts of Egypt in, in the 3rd century with St. Anthony, who is recognized as the father of monasticism around the world, and who becomes a, a very central figure to religious life anywhere in the world with whichever order we interact. And of course we had the variety of monastic life that was present there in the Egyptian deserts. And we had people like St. Benedict, John Cassian and others who went into the deserts of Egypt and then took this new way of life and brought it back to the West and started to started to give it effect, and we still see that until today, both in our thriving monastic communities in Egypt and abroad, but also in the monastic communities and religious communities around the world across the breadth of the church. The third, I think, is martyrdom. Um, no one rejoices in death, because as Christians, we value life, uh, both, both here but more importantly, eternal. And our relationship with death is that it's just a portal, an entry into a new life. But we're told by our Lord that no disciple, well, no disciple will be greater than his or her master. 
And so many of us around the world, historically and even until today, carry the cross of witness. And that leads to martyrdom. It is really the ultimate declaration and confession of faith against the greatest challenges. And if we look historically, the Church of Egypt has paid a significant price. It's been a very heavy cost. We start our calendar in the year 284 AD, which was the beginning of the reign of Diocletian, under whom we suffered the worst wave of persecution and martyrdom in our history. And that's really a recognition of, a nod to, the men and women who felt so strongly about their faith that they were willing to take that step. And sometimes it wasn't through choice, but the choice was to denounce their faith, which was never going to be a choice. Having said that, throughout our history, and this is what makes me really thankful, I mean, proud is the wrong word, but thankful, and I recognize it constantly, is that we never let that throw us into a spiral of victimhood. In actual fact, we saw that as a strength. Again, not, not with triumphalism, but with a humility that if our Lord was willing to ascend to the cross, and he called us to carry the cross, his cross, then that is what we are called to do. And if it means going to those lengths and making that incredible sacrifice, then that's what we do. And again, in, in, in our contemporary history, we find that that is a continuing theme, um, even up until years ago, a few years ago. We were seeing communities targeted, individuals targeted, churches targeted, and yet there's still this, this strength and resilience in the love of God, in the light of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the hope that comes into the world, and in the hope that we demonstrate to the world, that comes from living that martyrdom, but also being able to demonstrate a very gracious forgiveness and spirit of reconciliation. And there's also some practical, I guess is the right word, differences in the way that you live as a Coptic Christian. You fast, um, I think, probably more than any any church <laughs> in the world. You, uh, you adopt a vegan diet much of the time. Could you tell me a little bit about it? And also the music, I'm fascinated by the music, just going into the cathedral then, hearing your music. You have uh, ancient hymns that you've sung for thousands of years. You've kept traditions alive using the language of the Coptic Church is the is keeping that language alive. Tell me a little bit about those day-to-day -day differences. Although the church was born in Egypt and 90% of Coptic Christians still live in Egypt, um, the ones like ourselves who live and serve outside of Egypt are able to take that culture, that tradition, that doctrine, that life, and transfer it into, for us here, a very British context, being able to use English as a language. Um, of course, hymnology is key to our liturgical services. Everything is chanted. 
So we don't have musical instruments except for a small triangle and a small pair of cymbals that keep beat. But everything is chanted throughout the service, whether it's the, the priest, the deacons, the congregation, everything is chanted. And those chants are there in Coptic, which is our native language, but they're also available and actually used in English and in many other languages based on where we are in the world. So in, in that context, our life is important. Liturgically, we have that very traditional living liturgy. But then we also have very contemporary English worship songs that you would find at your local you know, Anglican or even evangelical church in our Bible studies, prayer meetings, youth gatherings, conferences, retreats. Outside of the liturgical presence, we use contemporary means as well. Fasting, as you say, is also incredibly important for us because for us, um, a fast is a preparation for a feast. And there's so much to rejoice in. There are so many feasts to have. We have the Feast of the Resurrection, the Feast of the Nativity, the Feast of the Apostles, the Feast of St. Mary, uh, the Feast of Jonah and Nineveh, uh, feasts of saints and martyrs throughout the church. And before each one of these feasts, we have a, a period of preparation and fasting. And tell me a bit about your journey. You were born in Egypt, but you spent much of your early life in, in Australia. How did you come to faith? Were you brought up in the faith? Like many Coptic Orthodox Christians, I was born into the church. But of course we have many more who are now joining the church as adults. Um, I was born into a Coptic Orthodox family, uh, baptized as an infant. Um, as you say, I was born in Egypt and we migrated as a family to Australia, where I lived all my childhood, adolescent life, my early year, early adult years. Um, finished my education, um, served in the church, uh, was active. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it, had a good social engagement as well as a ministry, a young you know, youth ministry and Sunday school ministry. I decided that I, I felt a calling I felt called to go to Egypt and join the monastery, and I did. And I traveled to Egypt, joined the monastery there, and stayed there for six years. And during that time, the, our then Pope, the late Pope Shunda III, um, took me under his wing. I became his disciple, um, his spiritual son, his private secretary, and I was mentored by him. I served with His Holiness for six years. He then sent me to the, to the UK and said, you've had enough administrative experience, I want you to go get some pastoral experience. Sent me here as a monk priest, a very young monk priest, where I served uh, for four years as a monk priest. I became a bishop in 1999. And then the birth of the Diocese of London was in 2017 when I became the Archbishop of London. So you've lived in, in various different cultures, growing up in Australia, living now in the UK. Do you feel there are culture clashes with, with the way that you've, you've lived as a Coptic Christian? What I've discovered about myself is I'm incredibly adaptable, <laughs> which is, I suppose, a good thing. It is a good skill. Um, I don't find that there are parts of me at war with each other. 
I feel that I'm actually a residual creation that is developing constantly as as we move. So, you know, I was born in Egypt. I lived first, you know, my, my infancy in Egypt and then grew up in Australia and I t was enriched by that. And then I went back to Egypt to a different context and the monasteries were enriched by that. And I've been here for 26 years now. I feel even more enriched. And so it's a cumulative process. And I think that's so, it's so true of so many of us. Only 50 years ago, most people would have born, lived and died in the same village somewhere in the world and never seen anything else. But when you look at my story and many people I know, both in our community and outside our community, there is so much movement that that living in a silo is no longer a reality for a lot of people. And we, we have this cumulative development as we move through life. And I, I am you know, not ashamed in the slightest to say that I will pick what I can use and try to learn from it on a daily basis. And uh, I think I've been very blessed in that mind. And you've got a few royal connections, Archbishop Angelos. You said the prayer as at Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding. You've been given an OBE for services to international religious freedom by the Queen. You've been described as a leading voice on global religious persecution. What do you think the global church should be doing when people of other faiths face persecution? First of all, I feel incredibly blessed to have met many people along my path, had made many friends and learned an incredible amount from a lot of people. So I really can't take much credit for everything that's been brought into my life by God. Mm -hmm. um, what I become accountable for is whether I use it faithfully or not, which I think is, for all of us, we're all given gifts and talents to use. The only Christian response to persecution of anyone is to advocate, is to be a voice of calling, a voice calling for justice, for equality, for equity, being, you know, walking in the same footsteps as our Lord Jesus Christ, the chief advocate. Um, I've always said that there's no way I can sit comfortably because my community is not in some way persecuted, but look upon another community, whether Christian, other faith, or indeed otherwise, and be okay that they're being persecuted. Because as Christians, we believe we were created in the image and likeness of God. And that is what we believe, and that is what we trust, and that is what we respect, that sanctity of life created by God, the dignity given to each and every one of us, the faithfulness of being faithful stewards in every way. Um, and this is, this is why I feel called to you know, what was called religious freedom issues now being called freedom of religion or belief. Um, because I, I believe that there are many communities like our own that have been persecuted historically, some still persecuted today. If we look at the, you know, the, the Baha'i community in Iran, the Rohingya community, uh, the Uyghur community, uh, the Ahmadi community, uh, Christians across 
Africa, Southeast Asia. Um, we even look at humanists, people who say they don't want to proclaim a belief, a, a, a faith, but have a belief. If God allows us to reject him and still loves us, then how can we possibly judge one another? And we need to draw a line between whether I agree with what people believe or I try to advocate for them and the rights they have. I am a Christian. I believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is our God and our Savior. I believe that the kingdom of God is open to anyone who chooses to follow our Lord. And we are all called to that kingdom. But I also understand that people will willingly, knowingly, intentionally reject that because they don't believe in it. Just as I don't believe in other faiths or beliefs. But as a Christian, I need to continue to be faithful in the message of our Lord. If not only loving people who think that I'm their enemy, but of being absolutely intolerant of intolerance. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. And as a a Coptic Orthodox Christian, you've seen your own community uh, targeted and persecuted. Is it okay to talk about some of those um, in living memory, those events, um, and perhaps what what we can learn from the way that the Coptic Christians have responded? It's very important for us to recognise the reality of our existence. Of course, we have to talk about persecution because we live persecution. I don't think it defines us as victims but it defines us as people of God who are willing to walk that journey and carry that cross. And in the past years, we have seen, most notably, I think, to the whole world, the Libya martyrs, those 21 men on the beach in Libya in those very distinctive orange jumpsuits, who became a symbol of faithfulness, of graciousness, um, of faith of a choice to the whole world I think somehow their suffering galvanized the world I received so many messages of support and condolence and admiration from people of all faiths and no faiths at all and there was even one man among them who wasn't a a Coptic Orthodox Christian Matthew do you know his story That's right, Matthew was a Ghanaian who was working with the Coptic Christians and he was given the choice to leave them and renounce his faith. And Matthew said, I've been with them, their faith is my faith, and he died with them. And the beauty is, when the 20 were repatriated, um, after some time, and they were laid to rest in, in a church near their home village. There was always one place left for Matthew. 
and when he was finally repatriated, and we kept trying as a church, you know, we tried here in the UK, and we 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 finally were able to succeed to have him repatriated because he had no family of his own that was claiming him. He went and he lay beside his brothers in that church in Upper Egypt. So it is an incredibly inspiring story. It's an incredibly inspiring witness of men who had just gone to earn a living for their families. They weren't evangelists, they weren't ministers, they weren't pastors. They were just very normal, simple, day-to-day people from less, less privileged families who left their families to go and work abroad to earn money for them. And yet, they had this opportunity to witness, and they did. But even besides them, we had you know, women and girls who were killed in a horrible blast in, you know, in, in a church in Cairo. Um, we had men, women, and children who died on an attack on our cathedral in Alexandria. Um, we've had families, individuals, villagers targeted to being Christian. And each one of those stories is tragic because it impacts lives around it. If you imagine a village mindset where everyone's related to everybody else and they have very strong ties, it's not mourning felt by one family. It is a mourning of a society. But it's also a thanksgiving for their lives. And that gives even more resilience to their families. I remember... Martin Mosebach, who wrote the book, The 21, said that he's a, he's a traditional Catholic, German Catholic, who just happened to see the picture of one of, one of the martyrs, Libya martyrs, on a Catholic, news, a Catholic magazine. He was so moved that he went to Egypt and lived amongst the families. And he was inspired by their stories, where he thought he'd go and see people who were angry and bitter and broken. But he said he saw people who were of course sad for the loss of loved ones, but who were resilient and gracious and forgiving. And so it's not even just these men, it is their families and their communities and their church. You know, I, I feel so incredibly blessed to be Coptic Orthodox because I, I, I'm holding onto the coattails of 15, 20 million Copts who live faithfully. We're living here in relative comfort and, and, and security and safety. And yet, when a church is bombed in Egypt or people are shot, the following day, churches are full. And when something happens, we see acts of kindness and reconciliation and forgiveness that can only be an inspiration. And I think that is a, an incredible legacy and an incredible thing we, we, we need to learn. And as we think about the global church and, and unity, you're involved with Thy Kingdom Come, which is started in the uh, Anglican Church, but it's now a, a global movement for prayer. Tell me a little bit about Thy Kingdom Come and, and your involvement. Yes, I remember when Thy Kingdom Come was just an idea and I was approached by someone who was working very closely with Archbishop Justin and the Council for Christian Unity. And they floated this idea of, we want to do something between Ascension and Pentecost, which I thought was a, was a wonderful idea. And, and I, I really am 
in admiration of the people who worked, starting with Archbishop Justin and then his whole team, and the Thy Kingdom Come team, who are all very dear friends of ours, um, because they haven't tried to own it or claim it exclusively, but they've taken people along with them. You know, we can all be very territorial and tribal with things, and this is mine, but actual fact, I, I have seen the very opposite of that. To the extent that last year, and hopefully this year as well, because we celebrate our Easter's, although we're celebrating the same feast, we're celebrating different calendars. So Thy Kingdom Come, the ten days, ran between you know, Ascension and Pentecost in the Western calendar, but then the same program ran again according to the Julian calendar, which I think was incredibly strong. It's a powerful message that we we rejoice in the same resurrection, even if we celebrated during the different calendars. So when will the Julian calendar, if you could translate it to me, to the Gregorian calendar that I use, when will you be praying Thy Kingdom Come, the, the, the 10, 11 days of prayer this year? So this year we're only a week later. Mm-hmm. So, so Easter Sunday for the Gregorian calendar will be our Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. So it's only a week apart. So those 10 days will overlap slightly um, because Pentecost will only be a week after uh, the Gregorian Pentecost celebration. And Thy Kingdom Come is a wave of prayer. It's um, helping people to come together to pray for, for God's kingdom to come. But it's also about evangelism, about introducing people to Jesus. How easy is it for Christians in Middle Eastern countries? I mean, I know that's it's not a generalization, but if you could give me some specific examples of how easy it is for people to share their Christian faith with with those around them. Incredibly easy. Incredibly easy, but not in the way you may be alluding to. Because in the West, we look at evangelism and outreach as a positive, separate act to day-to-day life. It's a ministry. Whereas I know millions of Christians in this country who are witnessing evangelizing every day, even if they don't deal with it as a ministry because of their own lives. And I think that's the way it would be, not the way that would be done, the way it is done in the Middle East. Um, As we've been speaking about, historically, uh, doctrine, faith, faithfulness, monastic movement, martyrdom, and that translates into life today. But then when you see things that we've been speaking about in acts of kindness and forgiveness and reconciliation and reaching out and, and protecting others and defending others and loving others and forgiving others, that is the greatest outreach and evangelism we can do. I'm always minded by the words of um, St. Francis of Assisi who says, go out, preach, and if you need, speak. Um, and I think it's important for us to realize that we do evangelism differently. And, and it really upsets me sometimes when, especially in, in some evangelical quarters, um, they look at the Orthodox as being dormant and dead and ineffective. And, and I know that's not the vast majority because I have wonderful friends who, are, who understand who we are. 
but it's because we don't do outreach. Definitely, because we don't you know, stand on the corner and street corner and say hallelujah. But you can't do that in a context like Egypt or Iraq or Libya or many other places around the Middle East. But what you do is you witness and you evangelize and you spread the love of God through your own life. And you reflect that light and that hope and that love. And just finally on Thy Kingdom Come, when you're praying the Lord's Prayer, when you're asking God's kingdom to come, perhaps thinking in the context of, of persecution as well, what does that mean? What does it mean for God's kingdom to come in those difficult situations? It means having a trust in the love of God, in his righteousness, in his faithfulness, that he will never leave or abandon us, that the numbers of, our, of the hair on our heads are counted, um, that he has created us for salvation. Um, and so when we put all that together, we think, well, Lord, if your kingdom is so perfect, let it come here. Let it be part of our lives. Because we don't want to wait till we get into the kingdom for your kingdom, your sovereignty, your majesty to be among us and to lie to, 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 and to be among us and to guide us and to lead us. Um, it also takes an element of humility, of submission, and those are two words we don't like. They're not words we really, really like a lot of the time. To be humble and think, I'm in your hands, but also to submit in a way that speaks of the trust we have in God. Those are two incredibly important components. I want to chat to you a little bit about your work with refugees. Um, obviously, within the context of Ukraine at the moment, Christians in the Middle East, and not just Christians, have fled oppressive regimes. What do you think the UK government approach to refugees should be? We're called to love and share resources, not to be selfish or self-centered. And so I think it's important for us to make whatever facilities we can make available, available. Um, but there's no doubt there's a, there's a difficult balance uh, when you're dealing with matters like seeking refuge, providing refuge, migration, in that you have limited resources, you have elements of national security, but you also have a sense of compassion and wider responsibility. And so I think that needs to be a very careful balance of being faithful to your constituency, your community, your population, keeping them safe, but also with the right safeguards in place to open up and welcome those who are vulnerable and for whom we do become a refuge. And I think the word refugees become so deeply politicized. It is such a trigger word now that we forget that it is built upon refuge, people seeking refuge. 
you don't seek refuge except if you are living in incredibly dire situations and circumstances. And if we are able to provide some of that security and support, then I think we have a moral obligation to do so, while at the same time bringing everything else into the picture because these are complex themes. Can you tell me about some of the... You've, you've been to visit some refugee camps, I think. Could you perhaps tell me about some of your experiences there? I have. Uh, during the... The earlier days of, of refugees moving uh, so perilously across the seas and across continents, I was able to first see a camp on the Greek-Macedonian border. Um, I visited uh, the Zartari camp, which is the second largest um, refugee camp in the world, I think. And the day I was at Zartari, it was the day of the birth of the 5,000th child in that camp. So for those children, they knew nothing but this refugee camp. Um, I've also seen refugee activities in, 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 in Lebanon and other places around the world. Um, and in them you see the best and worst of humankind because you see what oppression and unfairness does in the lives of people by displacing them internally and externally. You see the injustice manifest. But you also see the best in incredible work being done through the NGOs on the ground, through individuals, through church groups, uh, through through neighborhood groups, uh, through national groups, so much goodwill, so much goodwill. It was incredible to see just a few days ago on the Polish border and on the Romanian border how people had flocked to receive people coming in from Ukraine. Um, and to do what they can to provide support and shelter and accommodation and food. I am far from losing hope in humanity. Mm. I think Western, I, I think we, we are blessed with the image and likeness of God. And intrinsically, I think there is a goodness inside us that desires to do more. What, what is life like now for Coptic Christians in Egypt? With Coptic Christians in Egypt, there are still pockets of persecution that are happening. We see them mostly in the villages, the more remote villages. Thankfully, over the past couple of years, there haven't been the, the larger, more destructive, more painful incidents of bombings and shootings. Um, I know it's not in terms of numbers, but, but you know, any life lost is tragic. But we haven't had those large-scale attacks. But it's going to take time because it's a, it's a changing of hearts and minds. People need to look at their neighbors and think they're, not, they're not, very, not very dissimilar to me. And so why would I persecute or target them? 
because we are the same and we're living in the same context. So it will take time. Uh, as Archbishop of London, Angelus, when you look at Egypt, the country of your birth, as we've spoken about, and you see the, the difficulties and the harassment that women face in particular, what does the Coptic Orthodox Church have to say, say into that? Of course, it's, you know, harassment, victimization, abuse of women, men, children. It's all horrible, unacceptable. Um, of course, we know that in some cases, in many cases, and we're dealing with religious freedom, freedom of religion or belief, we find a compounded effect on women because not only are they members of a numeric minority or a minority group, but they're also women within that minority group. So we've seen, you know, over the past years, most recently, a targeting of, of women around the world, you know, that, that unthinkably in the 21st century, people being sold into slavery and so on and so forth. Now, in Egypt, we don't have that level of injustice, but there is an inequality that needs to be addressed. One of the things that Coptic Orthodox Church has been very vocal on is FGM, yeah, female. female genital mutilation, which is unacceptable. It happens in some of the smaller villages and happens disproportionately, not in our own community, but the church has been very clear that that is not something that is a matter of religious or even cultural practice. We've seen young women groomed. So we're working in Egypt with a lot of understanding, uh, information, uh, training on what it means to overcome the problems in the first place, but then being able to support women if they are targeted. And uh, it, it, is, it is very difficult to see. These are our, our daughters, our sisters, our mothers, um, it's painful to see, but we'll continue to be committed to it. Tell me about women in the Coptic Orthodox Church as well. The early Coptic Church had women deacons, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. until the 13th century. But then in uh, 1981, you began to ordain deaconesses again. What, what is a deaconess? So a deaconess is someone who, who serves... Um, in the church in a variety of capacities, um, as an assistant to the bishop, assistant to the priest, uh, within social contexts. Um, we have a lot of uh, deaconesses serving in women's ministry, um, orphanages, uh, senior citizens' homes, uh, disability ministries, a broad spectrum. Um, women play an active part in the life of the church in every aspect, except priesthood. So we, we do not, um, like all the Orthodox churches in the Catholic Church or traditional churches, we don't have um, a, a practice of women priesthood. Um, and the deaconesses, their role is not a sacramental role. It is a role of ministry uh, amongst communities and amongst individuals. Would you like to see that change? I'd rather you not ask me that question. Um, I, I, 
I have an, an incredible respect for the wonderful women who, who serve alongside me and I serve alongside them. When you look at the breadth of our ministries here in the UK at every level, I have incredible women serving um, in our youth ministry, adult ministry, in our outreach ministry, in our homeless ministry, um, administratively, legally, uh, in terms of strategic planning, every part of that we have uh, incredible women serving. I'm really, really proud to serve alongside. And as I said, the only place where that doesn't happen is in liturgical priestly ministry. And have you changed your mind on any theological standpoints over the course? Obviously, it's been, you've been a monk and a, an archbishop now for a good number of years. What things have you changed your mind on? So I've definitely been very blessed to be exposed to a, a wide variety of teachings and understandings. And many I will accept and learn from, some I will categorically reject. Um, and yes, I think I've, I don't know, Change is such a difficult word. Um, I think, has my thinking developed? Of course it has. I think my thinking is developed, my vision is developed. I think I have developed in many good ways. I'm sure I picked up some bad habits along the way as well, which are not good. But uh, I'd like to think I've developed in, in good ways. I'd, I'd like to think that I've learned from many people and my horizon has been broadened and again, maybe I won't agree with things, but at least I can see them from that perspective. And that is, that is half the journey. When I'm able to sit with you or anyone else, and even if I don't agree with you, if I can see life from your perspective, then we can have a conversation. And we can have mutual acceptance and respect, but not necessarily do or believe in the same thing. And tell me, let's just draw to a close by thinking about the church in the UK, the Coptic Church. What's the life of that church like now? How many people do you have in your church membership across the country? The Coptic Orthodox Church in the UK and Republic of Ireland. So we're talking about about 30,000 faithful, mm. served by about 35 parishes, um, predominantly based in Greater London and the south of England, but we also have communities in North and South Wales, in the Midlands and the West. We have communities in Scotland, in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, and we try as much as possible to bring them all together in a variety of things. I think we're very blessed to be a community that uh, is immersed in society here. The vast majority of our community here are medics. They've you know, come to England to do their membership in the Royal Colleges. They settle, they stay, they live. Their children are born here, they continue. And so by nature of that dynamic, people are moving around and interacting and integrating. So we are not an exclusive community by any means. We're not closed off by any means. We like integrating. We like cooperating, collaborating. And through my own ministry, and, 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 you know, that of people around me, we, we do collaborate and cooperate in a variety of things with everything from um, local and national government to 
uh, ecumenical groups you know, locally and nationally and internationally. Um, we look at uh, initiatives that we're involved with, with freedom of religion or belief, with, uh, with you know, refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, we look at the life of the church and how we can contribute. We take our active and responsible role as, in, as individuals and as a community in the nation that is now our home. And as we come into this time of prayer for thy kingdom come, what's your, what would you like to say to the church? Why, why are we praying and, and what are your hopes for, for these next weeks? The church is strong. The church is needed. Um, we need to completely reject any notion of the fact that the church is now irrelevant. But we need to continue to make it relevant. It needs to continue to be accessible and dynamic and responsive. And so we pray God's blessing upon his church in all its diversity. Uh, we pray God's healing upon his world, and especially as we look on with so many conflicts and wars at the moment that we would have thought inconceivable only a few years ago. We pray God's healing, especially in the aftermath of the main waves of pandemic, global pandemic. People are still suffering from, but thankfully not in the same way. Um, we pray God's grace upon the world, that his light may continue to shine and that his kingdom come. I'm Abigail Thomas, and you've been listening to my interview with Archbishop Angelos of the Coptic Orthodox Church here on Premier Christian Radio. For more conversations like this one, download the profile as a podcast at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.